And now we're going to hear the word of God, which Simon is going to read for us. The reading is from 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, reading from verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken." Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. 
Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Well, as you will know, the theme of our third meeting in this series is Gresham Machen, the distinguished American theologian and scholar and churchman. It's a real delight for us tonight to have as our lecturer the Reverend Dr. Bill Schweitzer, minister and pastor of Gateshead Presbyterian Church. Thank you, Bill, for agreeing to do this, and we very much look forward to what you have to say to us tonight. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by the right names. You cannot possibly have clarity on an issue or hope to be able to fix things when the basic identity of things and issues remains unclear. Think of what Jesus said to the seven churches in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. You see, back then, in the first century, there were those who claimed to be members of the one true religion. But they rejected the truth of the gospel as taught by John and by the Christian church as a whole, and they persecuted them. Now, as long as these people were allowed to continue making their claim, everything's muddled. There's confusion. It's, it's sort of one rival sect versus the other. But Jesus makes things clear. He says, no, these are not real Jews. They're lying when they make that claim. And in fact, they belong to the synagogue of Satan. Now that's what I call clarity. No more questions there. Each group has its own right name, and then everyone can move on to act appropriately. Well, that, in essence, is what Machen sought to do his entire life. But listen to what Machen himself said as his, his goal in the course of this famous book. The purpose of this book is not to decide the religious issue of the present day, but merely to present the issue as sharply as possible in order that the reader may be aided in deciding for himself. Presenting an issue sharply is indeed by no means a popular business at the present time. There are many who prefer to fight their intellectual battles in what Dr. Francis I. Patton has aptly called a condition of low visibility. Clear-cut definition of terms and religious views is by many persons regarded as an impious proceeding, a type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, 
regardless of their meanings or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. In the sphere of religion, as in other matters, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. So if you're hearing what Mason was saying here, he didn't want to decide the issue by argumentation. He merely wanted to call things by their right names. But of course he knew that as soon as he did that, the truth would be apparent to, to anyone as clear as day. So tonight we speak of this man who called things by their right names. I think that we are sometimes tempted to think that the kind of clarity we have now about what liberalism is and what evangelical truth is, that that was always the case. That any clear-thinking Christian probably saw these things at all times, in all places, but that is absolutely not the case. In the early 20th century, it was a very, very confusing situation. Before Mason, the Orthodox and the liberals coexisted side by side in the same churches and presbyteries and denominations and same seminaries. And there was much confusion as to what the liberals were saying and whether it was truly different than the orthodox faith. And even if it was, whether these things could coexist peacefully. And that was made all the worse because they were calling themselves evangelical, calling themselves reformed. It's funny how it's in the whole history of the church, it's very rare to find someone saying, I'm I'm a heretic. (laughs) Almost always they want to go by the name of the Orthodox, whatever that name might be. But the kind of clarity we now assume is entirely the benefit of hindsight, and it was much through the work of men like Machen that we have that kind of clarity. He called things by the right names. And in this monumental book, Christianity and Liberalism, he says that liberalism is not a new kind of Christianity. In fact, it's not Christian at all. It's another religion altogether, masquerading as Christianity. It's actually paganism, going by another name. And then he backs this up. He doesn't just make these assertions. He backs that up, both in his scholarly works and in his popular works. And then further, he he draws out the conclusions of doing what was necessary for the day, of enacting the separation that needed to happen between God's people, the Christians, and between the pagans going by the name of Christians. And so he made things official by bringing about a new seminary, Westminster, a new missions board, a new denomination eventually. I would not merely claim to be a Christian, but would be in fact such. So much to cover. I must give my apologies for all the inadequacies of this paper, but I'd like to cover it in two major sections, the first being uh, Machen, the man and his thought, and the second being application for us, because of course it's of little use to study church history unless we make some application to our contemporary situation. So within this first major section, I'll be dealing with the biographical sketch, secondly, Machen as contender for doctrinal orthodoxy, and third, Machen, the churchman. So then a biographical sketch. I have to give a biographical sketch because uh, Machen isn't all that well known uh, in the UK. And so let me give you just the briefest of sketches. 
Machen was born in the, by the way, the J, the J uh, Gresham Machen stands for John, uh, was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1881 to a genteel southern family. Baltimore was sort of the most northerly of the southern cities. It was very much in the southern heritage, but uh, as the furthest north, the one perhaps least affected by the Civil War and was in good material circumstances. He attended an independent school, had a classical education, including the study of Latin and Greek. And then he attended the recently founded Johns Hopkins University. Um, Some of you may not know that name, but it's considered one of the new Ivies, one of the new Ivy League schools in America. It had only been founded probably uh, two decades or so before uh, Machen attended, uh, yet it had already, uh, in in an amazing amount of, uh, of time, had become an elite university. Um, he was a brilliant student, uh, the top of his class, and in 1901 was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. Again, that name not, may not be known here, uh, but it's a, the sort of answer to a mystery. There's, he's wearing something, and I wondered, what is this thing that he's wearing on his watch chain? And I thought, I think I've seen that somewhere before. And uh, looked around, and sure enough, it's a Phi Beta Kappa key. It's the uh, American uh, Honors uh, Society, started the same year as our nation in 1776. But um, his scholarship was then and remained an important feature of his contribution to the church. Then made a very difficult and momentous decision to enter Princeton Seminary. It was difficult because although he was a professing Christian and he was a, a communicant member of his Presbyterian church, he, had, he didn't have a call to go into the, the ministry. Um, he, in fact, he even went to a summer course in economics at the University of Chicago uh, that summer after leaving uni- university undergraduate. But after speaking with uh, a minister who encouraged him to at least give divinity, at least give the ministry as much as a try as you gave economics and go to Princeton Seminary, and if you don't like it, you can always leave after a year. Well, Princeton was then the great bastion of Westminster Orthodoxy, um, and in fact, he did like it quite a bit. In fact, he grew to love particularly the study of New Testament, and after that, he went on to Germany for postgraduate studies, as was the, the custom in those days. And in Germany, he encountered liberalism firsthand, and this is an important biographical point here. When he was at Marburg, he heard Wilhelm Herrmann, and he was captivated. He says, Herman speaks right to the heart, and I've been thrown all into confusion by what he says. So much deeper is his devotion to Christ than anything I've known in myself during the past few years. And he's speaking of Westminster. We need to understand that when Machen critiques liberalism, he is one who knew its power in the most personal way. And indeed, the struggle, the personal struggle as to what he believed, went on for much of that next year. But ultimately, coming to see that although men like Harriman were obviously sincere and indeed passionate with what they believed, what they were teaching was not true. And he would always retain a certain sympathy for those who held modernist views, but he only wished that they would be honest about it, as Harriman was. 
So after much consideration about what to do next, he returned to Princeton to serve uh, as an instructor in New, Te- in New Testament. This was a temporary position. It wasn't a, a voting. He wasn't a voting member of the faculty there. Um, still not ordained. But he eventually did recognize the definite call of God to the ministry, particularly in the course of his occasional preaching. And he was ordained in 1914 on the eve of the First World War and made an assistant professor there at Princeton. He served in uh, World War I, not as a chaplain, but uh, as a YMCA uh, secretary. And uh, does anyone know what his main job was during the war? Making chocolate. That's right. Um, which is good news for me. Um, my, the, the man I mainly studied, Jonathan Edwards, uh, was something of a chocoholic. So I was glad to see that Mason did his wartime service in, in chocolate. Well, he was uh, located very near the front despite that, and he saw his share of death and suffering, but himself he, he survived um, and returned to Princeton and resumed his duties. But very, after, very soon after the physical war, another sort of war broke out, and that was the fundamentalist modernist conflict. The, uh, perhaps the opening shot of that was Harry Fosdick in his famous sermon. Fosdick wasn't a Presbyterian, but he was serving at the Presbyterian, the first church, I believe, uh, well, one of the Presbyterian churches in New York City in Manhattan, And uh, he preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And in response to that, the the Presbyterians, the General Assembly took action in 1923 to make a deliverance in favor of the five fundamentals. But then there was a backlash with the Auburn Affirmation of 1924 when the liberals uh, banded together to make their famous affirmation. And Mason then became an active combatant in this conflict publishing things like Christianity and Liberalism and the origin of Paul's religion. Machen, in recognition of these things, was elected to the vacant chair of apologetics. So he was a New Testament scholar. He had sort of transitioned to being more of an apologist. But in retribution for various things, the General Assembly, which was increasingly of the mood of modernism, refused to uphold his breaking with tradition over the last century, refused to uphold the appointment of the director's and uh, he never served in that capacity. At the same time, they moved to reorganize Princeton. From the, they had two boards, one the board of directors, the other one which was conservative, and the board of trustees, which was definitely not, and they reorganized it. And in response, um, well, doomed Princeton as a bastion of, of orthodoxy, and Machen responded by founding Westminster Seminary in 1929. The rest of his compressed history uh, moved quickly from that point. Um, he founded also an independent board for foreign missions, of which he was eventually uh, investigated and tried and, and found to be uh, insubordinate for 1935. The appeal was dismissed by the General Assembly, and Mason was suspended from the ministry. Later that year, he and others of like mind founded the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, But by the start of the next year, Mason was off the scene. He died of pneumonia while on a trip to very cold North Dakota, dying on the 1st of January, 1937. That's the biographical sketch. 
Let us now consider Machen as a contender for the faith. In Jude 1.3, we read, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once delivered to all the saints. Machen clearly believed that, and he lived it. He did that in any variety of ways, but just to sort of give a a sampling of the way he he served as a, a contender for the faith, he was a scholar. Now, it's, it's funny, uh, several of his books are still in print, but one of them would be his introduction, his New Testament Greek grammar. It's in fact just written through another new edition. And that's, of course, very interesting as to why he would be interested in doing that. It highlights his mindset that you cannot fight the liberals unless you know what the scripture itself says. And you cannot know what the scripture itself says unless you know the original languages. That, of course, harkens back to the Reformation heritage itself. It was a recovery of the original languages of Greek and Hebrew and the study of the Bible that was so much a part, so much of a driving force of the Reformation and had long remained uh, an element in the Reformed faith of having an educated ministry. Well, he saw that as crucial, and we've got to teach these young seminarians Greek now, he used that then. He used his, his uh, in-depth knowledge of, of Greek and furthermore of New Testament studies to be a critic of liberalism. I think it would be difficult for us to overestimate the influence of his critique had. It may not have made much in the end difference to the liberals themselves. They probably didn't change many of their conclusions based on Machen's critique, but they had to reckon with him, and that was important. And far more important, I think, was the influence he had on evangelicals. Because then, as is now, there was a sort of fight even among ourselves. The fundamentalists were by no means a united body. And there were those like Machen who were traditional, reformed, who believed in an educated ministry and they believed in the confession. And then there were the fundamentalists of a broader sort who were fairly anti-intellectual. And they didn't really care about reading what the, the German liberals had to say. All they wanted, they, they retreated into their sort of evangelical ghettos and uh, ignored what was going on in, in the larger world. Well, Machen represented the school that says, we're going to learn what they're saying and we're going to, to fight them. Maybe not on their own terms because we can't let them win that way, but we're certainly going to learn as much as they know And we're going to make our stand. You know, there were a few like Machen, because on the whole, either one was doing the scholarship like like he was in Germany, and he capitulated to critical canons and was not an evangelical, or one was a true evangelical but no scholar. But Machen wasn't like that. And I want to give you one sort of solid example of what that uh, looks like. And that would be his 1906 article critiquing Harnack's view that Luke sort of invented the Magnificent and the Benedictus. Now, it took a few years, but the interesting thing is that Harnack himself eventually became aware of this article and he reviewed it in a German critical uh, journal. Now, you don't review too many articles in uh, in any journal. You normally review books. But this is the man that he's actually critiquing, and Harnack felt compelled to say something about it 
uh, in, in this journal. Now, that's what Machen was hoping to achieve. He didn't, he didn't convince Harnack, but Harnack had to admit that, quote, his admirable study was deserving of every attention. It was too competent to be ignored. And that is perhaps the goal of evangelical scholarship. Main fruits of his labor along these lines were the origin of Paul's religion and the virgin birth of Christ. And uh, just to briefly say something about them, I think, again, I point you visually to this book on the cover of the origin of Paul's religion. And the answer to the question is sort of depicted here in that you see Jesus Christ appearing to Paul. It was a supernatural event. The risen Christ appearing to, Christ, uh, to, uh, to Paul, it was supernatural. And quite simply, this book is a defense of supernatural Christianity. I ask uh, Professor Carl, Carl Truman, who is sort of a successor of, of Machen at uh, Westminster Seminary, what he thought was the, the basic issue that I ought to drive home in a lecture like this. And his vote was to talk about supernaturalism because it is so fundamental to everything that we do as Christians. As the moment that we refuse to speak about miracles, the moment we refuse to talk about the necessity of the new birth of the Holy Spirit and of the supernatural transformation that we undergo in regeneration, then Christianity is lost. And so whether we are speaking to our neighbor or whether we're making learned treatises like Machen, we do not give up supernaturalism one iota. We've mentioned Christianity and liberalism and of the, precise, the particular point uh, there, but I'd say a lot the, the themes that we find in these things, one would be that he was for dogmatic truth. Being dogmatic is sometimes seen as a, as a horrible thing. No one wants to be dogmatic. Well, Machen wasn't afraid to be dogmatic. He wasn't a, a defending some sort of basic Christianity that was some sort of bare theism against the liberals. He was defending the whole thing. And I think that's a good idea. I think sometimes in the rush to sound uh, attractive to the world, we were willing to give up any number of things. But Machen wasn't. And the sort of Christianity he stood for was the kind that had a creed and the kind that has a confession. Not a minimalist sort of creed in which we band together on the very least lowest common denominator, but for the whole thing. And also he was historical. You've uh, perhaps heard of uh, Lessing's famous quote of the, the leap of faith. Of, and it speaks of the disconnect, the perceived disconnect between the contingent events of history and our beliefs, our faith. Well, Machen said it's precisely that Christian religion depends upon this, this correlation between these so-called contingent events of history and what we believe. Unlike Pearl Buck, who was a serving Presbyterian missionary and was the cause of, in fact, one of the, the controversies, one of the reasons why Machen eventually uh, started the Independent Board for Foreign Missions was because she was, on, she was supported by that board. Unlike Pearl Buck, who said, it doesn't really matter if these things happen or not. It doesn't really matter as long as we have this faith, which is the highest attainment of the human spirit. 
The matron says, if these things didn't happen, if Jesus Christ didn't walk out of that grave alive, then our faith is nothing. History matters. And then finally, we would say another thing that characterized his defense of the faith was that he wanted to go where the battle was raging. Now, you might ask, why the virgin birth? Why was that his, his magnum opus, his great masterpiece? Why did he spend so much time on this particular doctrine? You know, it's not even mentioned in the Gospel of John. It's not even mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. How could that be so important as to devote so much of his scholarly life to the defense of this little doctrine? Machen said, Just those things which are under fire, then, are the things which are left out. To leave them out means capitulation to the deadliest enemy of Christianity and treason to the Lord who gave his life for us. Leaving out those things that are under fire at the time is treason. And in so doing, he agreed with Luther, who said, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition of every point of the word of God, except precisely that little point, which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldiers proved. And to be steady in all the battle front besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches on that point. Virgin birth and every doctrine like it is worthy of our defense because it is there that our faithfulness as soldiers is tested and shown for what it is or what it isn't. Thirdly, and finally of this section, we think of Machen as a churchman because he was not just an academic doing these things in a sort of cerebral way. He was a churchman. So much of the spirit of his age was that unity was important. In fact, one of the main issues was this plan of union that the the Presbyterian Church was considering to make what would eventually become the United Churches of Christ. And what unified them was simply that doctrine is unimportant. That's what unified them. The only basis, Machen replied, of real unity is unity in faith. What ounce is there? What ounce are we truly, in a positive way, unified over? You can have an alliance of social clubs. You can certainly do that. But in order to have unity as Christian believers, we have to have unity in that which we believe. And furthermore, honesty in what we believe is very important which is why he eventually believed that a separation was necessary. He incidentally didn't go willingly. He didn't just walk out of the church willy-nilly. He was thrown out, as was Luther. But he knew that eventually a separation was going to have to happen was because basic honesty demanded it. Because there were many men who were in that church who claimed to be Christians and were teaching the diametric opposition of the Christian faith. And those things could not continue forever. If you want to be liberal, fine, say so. But don't claim to be orthodox. So eventually he made these new institutions, starting with Westminster Seminary. 
Now, it's interesting that that was the first of the institutions he made. It goes along with his conviction that what is essential, what is maybe not most important, but as for institutions that you can create, perhaps the most important next to the church itself, are good seminaries to train an educated ministry who know the truth and are able to defend it and are able to convey it to people. Furthermore, with regard to the independent board of of foreign missions, he considered this strange reality of which money, his own money, of which he was very generous, uh, he was a man of some means and he gave generously to all sorts of works, uh, was going to support people who didn't believe basic ideas of Christianity. They were going in the foreign missions field to do the social gospel. And he decided that it was not a good idea And so he formed this independent board. And finally, after being kicked out of the the PCUSA, he founded the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. By the way, for the first year, it was actually known as the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, until they were forced by a lawsuit to change that to the OPC. But anyways, he founded this, this, this Presbyterian church that was going to be orthodox and faithful to the Westminster Confession. Uh, John Piper, man, some of you may know, has an excellent lecture on Machen, um, and he points out that while Westminster has been wildly uh, successful in all sorts of ways, the OPC, in his, in his opinion, remains uh, small. And I suppose if you have a church the size of Piper's, uh, many of our churches would seem small. But it, it remains at less than 200 churches and 20,000 members. Now, again, that's uh, much larger than my, my denomination here, the EPCW, with 13 churches and, and about less than 1,000 members. But it is, by American standards, remains uh, over these, these last, uh, near, coming up to a, a nearly a century now of, of its history, and it remains small. What do we make of that? Well, one thing that we confess is that there will always be a true church to worship God according to his will. The OPC is not the only true church. But I think the reality is that God gets glory from those who worship him according to his will. And there may be thousands and thousands and thousands of churches with hundreds of thousands of members that don't believe the truth and are worshiping God contrary to his revealed will, but I don't think he gets much glory from that. So the OPC may be small, but perhaps in God's eyes it was worth it. Now, one of the reasons for his efforts to to make these new institutions was the reality that tolerating heresy was very close to teaching heresy. Because he never said that everyone in the PCUSA was a heretic. He never came close to saying that. In fact, he knew many, many, many good men who were teaching the right things. His problem was that as an institution, as an entire church, they in the end decided to tolerate those who were teaching heresy. Stonehouse says, And in holding that the members had tolerated modernism, E. Mation held that their disqualifications had been demonstrated altogether apart from the question whether they could be proved to be heretic in their personal beliefs. 
in response to the 1934 General Assembly as he saw the handwriting on the wall, as he saw where all this was going. This is what he said. I shall, of course, not obey any... This is the order with regard to you must resign from the Independent Board for Foreign Missions. I shall, of course, not obey any such order and shall continue to be a member of the Independent Board. The meaning of the Assembly's action is that every officer and member of the Presbyterian Church in the USA is ordered by the General Assembly either to support the official board, which is carrying on modernist propaganda, or else to separate from all missionary endeavor. No Christian man can do either of these two things without being disloyal to Christ. We may ultimately be put out of the Presbyterian Church, but the spread of the gospel that we preach will not thereby be checked. Now, as always, it remains true that the word of God is not bound. He felt that he had two impossible propositions. He could either cease carrying on missions, which he could not do as a Christian, or eventually he would have to leave the church or be forced out. Finally, we think of him as a preacher. Now, it's true that he was never the settled minister of a, of a, of a certain congregation. From the very beginning, he was an academic. Um, but throughout his life, he preached regularly. And in fact, for, oh, I forget, at least a year, he was the settled minister, or he was the regular supply of the first church at Princeton. And I want to give you an example of his preaching so that you'll know that Machen was not just an academic, but he was also a preacher. Here's an example that uh, relates particularly to the situation of the day. He's speaking of the real God. Yet such a God has at least one advantage over the comforting God of modern preaching. He is alive. He is sovereign. He is not bound by his creation or by his creatures. He can perform wonders. Could he save us if he would? He has saved us. It could not have been foretold, still less the manner of it have been foretold. That birth, that life, that death. Why was it done just thus and then and there? It all seemed so local, so very particular, so very unphilosophical, very unlike what might have been expected. Are not Abana and Farfar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Yet what if it were true? So the all-great were the all-loving too. God's own Son delivered us, delivered up for us all, freedom from the world, sought by philosophers of all the ages offered now to every simple soul, things hidden from the wise and prudent revealed unto babes, the long striving over, the impossible accomplished, Son conquered by mysterious grace, communion at length with the Holy God, our Father which art in heaven. Surely this and this alone is joy, but a joy that is akin to fear. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're not safer with a God of our own devising, love and only love, a father and nothing else, one before whom we could stand in our own merit without fear. Let him who will be satisfied with such a God be satisfied. But we, God help us, sinful as we are, we would see Jehovah. Despairing, hoping, trembling, half-doubting, half-believing, staking all upon Jesus, we venture into the presence of the very God and in his presence live. The man was a preacher. Now we move on to our second part, which is our application of these things. 
Now this lecture is all about calling things by their right names and all about contending for the truth. So allow me to preface these remarks by saying that I think it would be a blatant betrayal of Mason and everything that he stood for by then shirking from saying something that perhaps Mason would or perhaps to pretend some kind of pan-evangelical minimalism in my remarks of application. So if you'll forgive me, I shall not attempt anything of the sort. My first application is simply, in general, to contend for the truth. Now, we have spoken of the problems of error, that heresy is deadly. The, only, the true religion is what saves and nothing beside it. But Mason also believed that indifference was the problem, and I might say that indifference is a problem today. The claim has never been that these are some sort of fundamentals of liberalism, and you have to believe those things and and nothing else. That's not it. It's, I believe this, you believe that, and that's fine. As long as we're both working to advance the gospel, whatever that might be. Insisting or even trying to pin down clarity on doctrinal truth is unnecessary, divisive, and time-wasting. We need to get on with the business of the gospel. My friends, I've heard such statements more than once. And the sort of sentiments that are expressed in that is its doctrinal indifference. Doctrinal indifference aiding and abetting the enemy is in practical matters nearly as bad as believing the error itself. Now, how can we contend for the truth? First, I think we need to know what the truth is. We're not going to be able to know what the truth... We're not going to be able to defend the truth. We're not going to be able to combat indifferentism unless we ourselves know what the truth is. I'd give as an application, perhaps, those of you who have some influence on who you get as a minister at your church. How do you evaluate a man applying to be your minister? You ask him, what do you believe? You ask him, do you believe the Bible? And he says, yes, I believe everything in the Bible. And you say, oh yeah, me too. I believe that as well. And you move on. Well, I think history would tell us that lots of heretics say that they believe the Bible. And the thing is, you have to go down the list with them. You have to come up with a list of those things that you know to be true and to make sure that they believe them to be as well. But interestingly, by the time you've gone down that list, you've eventually found that you've made yourself a confession of faith. Now, a a confession of faith is a very good thing to have. And I'm all for it. And the only question then remains is to whether the the confession that you made up on, on... the, uh, the back of a, a sticky pad uh, yesterday, or a confession made up by some of the greatest minds that the Christian church has produced and has been time-tested over centuries, is a better confession to go by. So I would su- suggest to you that perhaps it's worthwhile to examine for yourself the confessions and to adopt one if you haven't already. Secondly, besides knowing what truth is, and I would recommend having a confession of faith, you have to know what error is. And for that, you need, among other things, church history. I am sometimes amazed uh, that Arminianism 
is perceived by many to be Protestant orthodoxy. Now, you and I may argue as to whether it's true or not. Perhaps we can have that discussion some other time. But one thing it's certainly not is Protestant orthodoxy. One thing that Luther, Zwingli, Calvin all agreed on, they didn't agree on, or they, they agreed on, on certainly many essentials of the faith, but they disagreed on many things. But one thing they were all agreed on was that God is absolutely sovereign in the destiny of man. The closest thing the, the Protestant church ever had to an ecumenical council, the Synod of Dort, anathematized Arminianism. So again, it may be true, it may be false, but it's not Protestant orthodoxy. Now to add to that, of course, we have many, many heresies, starting with the, the Christological heresies. We have to know what those are because they seem to reappear every, every uh, couple of generations we need to know all the various sorts of things of, of workspace soteriology that we, we see in Roman Catholic doctrine. And then we need to know all the, the new sets of heresies that have happened since the Enlightenment, most particularly with regard to attitudes towards the Scripture. Well, those things are a long list, and we need to benefit from learning those things. Thirdly, if we're going to to do this defense of the faith today, we need to be convinced that God is zealous for the purity of the church. We need to be convinced that God actually cares about these things. Because let me tell you, if we're doing this on pragmatic grounds, we might as well quit now. Um, Pragmatism doesn't have much time for a defense of the faith. Pragmatism doesn't have much time for men like Machen. Pragmatism says we have a work to do and we need to get on with that work as much as we possibly can. And we're going to adopt whatever methods and whatever beliefs are going to bring them in the door. Whatever ways of worshipping. That's pragmatism. But one who takes the injunction in Jude seriously says that God cares about his own truth and he is glorified when it is upheld. And it is worth incurring the wrath of man It is worth incurring pragmatic loss in order to uphold God's truth. I would even say that we ought to be convinced that truth is what works. I say that pragmatism is concerned with bringing them in the doors and so forth. But what I eventually mean by that is, ultimately mean by that is to say, yes, it looks like it's working for the moment, but it's not really working. As we believe that God has given his word to us and he has given us the means of grace and he's not withheld these things from us and nothing that we come up is going to be better than that. What ultimately works is what God has given to us. And we can be reformed pragmatists. We can be convinced that what is right is also what ultimately works. Sometimes there's hay and stubble and it has great mass. It looks big. But what the word of God says is that on the final day all the hay and stubble Whatever its appearance is, is going to be burned up. And only the precious metals and gems remain of those things that are done God's way. Secondly, I would say, let's think about some contemporary issues. Let's think about some contemporary issues. Because while we know that Mason lost some major battles, in another sense he did win, because we look back... And we say that Mason was right and the liberals were wrong. 
We look back at it and say, all those things that he said, they were right and true. And the other ones, they were wrong. So church history on the whole has vindicated Machen. I might say, incidentally, the man was not perfect. Again, there are many uh, flaws in his character that we could speak of. But on the whole, church history has vindicated what he stood for. Now, so what do we do? Do we say, well, jobs are good and, and we move on because it's done? Or do we understand the reality that these things recur over and over and over again? And that even in our church today, again, it's not the popular thing to do to stand up and say, this is a church of heresy, don't come here. It's to be masquerading as, as orthodox truth. Now, there are some of these things that you may be aware of, and I'll just mention three things of which I just simply ask the question of whether there might be some problem with these contemporary issues. The first would be generous orthodoxy. That's the title of a recent book by Brian McLaren. And here's the publisher's blurb that explains what it is. Generous orthodoxy calls for a radical, Christ-centered orthodoxy of faith and practice in a missional, generous spirit. Rather than establishing what is and is not orthodox, McLaren walks through the many traditions of faith, bringing to the center a way of life that draws us closer to Christ and each other. Whether you find yourself inside, outside, or somewhere on the fringe of Christianity, a generous orthodoxy draws you toward the way of living that looks beyond the us-them paradigm to the blessed and ancient paradox of we. Liberalism has never been about a defined set of beliefs. It is funny to me that uh, we move on to the word generous. You know that back in... uh, Around about the, the turn of the 20th century, uh, you would often use the word liberal for someone who is materially generous. If you gave a lot of money, this man was liberal. And so that word meant precisely what McLaren is, is saying now. It's generosity. And the generosity is about being doctrinally indifferent. It was never about the enforcing of a specific liberal creed all about a plea for toleration for those who don't hold orthodox views. That's all it is. You know, some people are surprised just how innocuous some of the classic statements of, of liberalism are. You read them and you say, that doesn't even sound, that doesn't sound very bad. Is that really a classic statement of liberalism? Let me read to you the, the Auburn Affirmation, which I mentioned, this classic statement of liberalism. What does it say? It says this. The actions of the Assembly, 1923, state, attempts to commit our church to certain theories concerning the inspiration of the Bible and the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, and the continuing life and supernatural power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We we hold most earnestly to these great facts and doctrines. We all believe from our heart that the writers of the Bible were inspired of God and that Jesus Christ was God manifested in the flesh. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, and through him we have our redemption. That having died for our sins, he rose from the dead and is our ever-living Savior. That in his earthly ministry, he wrought many mighty works, and his vicarious death and unfailing presence, he is able to save to the uttermost. Some of us regard the particular theories contained in the deliverance of the General Assembly of 1923 as satisfactory explanations of these facts and doctrines. But we are united in believing that these are not the only theories allowed by Scripture, 
and our standards as explanations of these facts and doctrines of religion, and that all who hold to these facts and doctrines, whatever theories they may employ to explain them, are worthy of all confidence and fellowship. Did you hear the orthodox sounding language? Did you hear it? And did you hear what the, the being united was all about? I'm just saying, just please tolerate those who believe this. These theories that really have nothing to do with any essential of the faith. We all believe that, of course we do. Now, who got kicked out, by the way, in the end? Was it the liberals? No, it was Mason. Again, a reminder of just how tolerant in the end this movement of toleration is. Now, Mason responded, by the way, to that, uh, New York time, uh, that issue in the New York Times by saying that a plea for tolerance was a deplorable attempt to obscure the issue. Now, again, I'll let you draw your own conclusions about Brian McLaurin and the idea of generous orthodoxy. But I think, in reality, it's a, 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 an attempt to obscure the real issues by claiming it doesn't really matter. And here are these more important things that we can all get together on. Second, you might want to be on the lookout for the transformational theory of the atonement. And what I mean by that is there's this idea of the atonement where there is substitution in some way, but it's a karmic sort of way. It's not substitution, it's not penal substitution whereby Christ paid for our sins and taking the wrath of God for our sins on the cross. It is substitution in some way and it's payment for sins, but in a karmic kind of universal way of which God is not an angry judge. In fact, they may even say some sort of concept that Jesus died to pay a price for us, maybe the price of eternal justice, but not really the personal wrath of a holy God. And then the main way that this works, the main soteriological action, is that not in this real exchange of sin, you know what I mean, of the, the exchange whereby we, our sins, are put on Christ and in Christ pays for them on the cross, Rather, the soteriological action seems to be its transformational effects upon us. You see, our problem as human beings is that we are selfish. And in our selfishness, we are all kind of bent up upon ourselves. And it alienates us from other people. And it alienates us from God. And in fact, if this is left, it's eventually going to be hell. God's not going to send us to hell. But what is our sin and our selfishness will eventually become hell. And we need something to break us out of that cycle before we end up in that situation. And the only thing powerful enough to do it is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when we see his, his ultimate act of self-sacrifice, it breaks through our selfishness and enables us to get out of that situation of alienation. Well, here's what Mason had to say on that subject. Modern liberal preachers do indeed sometimes speak of the atonement. They speak of it as seldom as they possibly can, and one can plainly see that their hearts are elsewhere than at the foot of the cross. Indeed, at this point, as with many other, others, one has a feeling that traditional language is being strained to become the expression of totally alien ideas. And when the traditional phraseology has been stripped away, the essence of the modern conception of the death of Christ, though that conception appears in many forms, is fairly plain. Now, here's what he says that they, back then, all had in common. And maybe today some of them do as well. The essence of it is that the death of Christ had an effect not upon God, but only upon man. 
Sometimes the effect upon man is conceived of in a, in a very simple way, Christ's death being regarded merely as an example of self-sacrifice for us to emulate. But the principle is, if your theory of the atonement is all about its effect upon man, it's an error. The orthodox doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is about the effect of the atonement upon God as a propitiation for our sin. Thirdly, and finally, be on the lookout for Gospels that talk a lot about cultural transformation, but not about the need for the supernatural new birth. Mason said with regard to this issue in his day, it is not an influence upon the life, but the beginning of a new life. It is not development of what we already have, but a new birth. At the very center of Christianity are the words, ye must be born again. These words are despised today. They involve supernaturalism. And the modern man is opposed to supernaturalism in the experience of the individual as much as in the realm of history. Now again, I won't go into much detail. But if you encounter a, a gospel that says everything about cultural transformation, it doesn't seem to get around much to talking about the need for the new birth, you might want to watch out. Those were the contemporary sort of situations about which I was saying. I have two very brief further applications in general. One is to simply build the infrastructure. Do what Mason did. In this country, the infrastructure is fallen down and it needs to be rebuilt. Somebody needs to build the churches. Somebody needs to start the seminaries. Somebody needs to have the missions boards and the publication arms and to do all the sorts of things that need to be done. Now, for many of you, I don't really need to say such things because we know that you're doing it. But for the rest of us, we ought to be like Mason and being willing to build that infrastructure. And then, as a fairly young man, finally I say to the younger man, this is what Mason wrote. The greatest opportunity the world has ever offered to the pulpit is with us now. Without the infusion of a spiritual vitality into really intellectual preaching, I do not know what is to become of our nation. For want of such a strong utterance here in New England, at any rate, a most lamentable spread of infidelity is taking place. This generation has almost ceased to be Christian, and it would not be surprising if the next generation were godless. Now, God doesn't call every man into the ministry. And some would perhaps take issue with the precise way in which Mason himself was called into the ministry. But the reality is that times are tough for evangelical Christianity in this nation. And it might be worth your while to go before God and to pray and to consider whether you might be called to the ministry. And if so... If that's the case, and you go get the best education you possibly can, and you put it in the interest and for the advancement of God's church, like Mason did. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Bill. I'm sure that uh, you've prompted some questions. Uh, Bill, I'd like to say thank you for that very inspirational uh, message about a great American Christian. <laughs> Jay Gresham Machen. Uh, I hope this is a brief question. <laughs> um, you, there, there were several debates that went on uh, between Princeton 
and uh, at, in Princeton at the time when Machen separated from the school. And a lot of it framed itself around this concept of the inerrancy of Scripture. But the problem is when you read about this, you're sort of like the person on the outside, you know, reading about these issues that are going back and forth and not knowing what the terminology is and what, you know, what they really mean, what, what it is that they're disagreeing about. Uh, is there anything that you could recommend that Machen wrote or said about his view on Scripture that would sort of give us a better understanding of where he stood on this whole area, this whole issue of inerrancy? Because the liberals use those terms, but they mean different things. Indeed, and great to have an alumnus of Princeton here with us. Um, Machen, on, on numerous occasions throughout his, his writings and letters, affirmed uh, inerrancy. Um, I, I suppose, uh, interestingly, I think for a man who is so, uh, that, that was so important, he didn't really write a full-scale defense or explanation of inerrancy, and I think that's because he was so associated with Warfield. Um, he had tremendous respect for Warfield, uh, in some sense, it's a shame that the, the schedule didn't have Warfield first and then Machen because Machen really built on Warfield. But um, he, so I, I, I think it's quite accurate to say that his view of inerrancy was, uh, if not identical, practically identical to that of Warfield. I definitely subscribe to the view that Tozer took as well, that if you had to choose between truth and peace, choose truth. And, um, but I come from a background as a former lawyer. And I've read books, contemporary books, against um, Wright and Piper, a, a former, well, the, the, the controversy between Tom Wright and Piper, mm-hmm. and um, the atonement controversy that took place in Wales in the 17th century or 18th century. And what strikes me, as a former lawyer, is the adversarial stance of both sides and sometimes it verges on godless vitriol not grace and that's what really gets me about about some of it we need the grace to it's the truth in grace which is important as well and it's so easy for me to get to that adversarial place which you can sometimes, if you sling mud, as, as um, somebody once said, you get your hands dirty and you also remove the ground from under your feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that tension which is so, so difficult, I think, to achieve in practice. Without the grace of God, we cannot make that argument graciously. Well... In response, I suppose I can only just uh, agree with you that we must be gracious in, in our replies uh, in all things. But I think, um, well, perhaps two things there. Uh, one of the examples you gave was the, the uh, situation between Wright and Piper. Now, if you were to ask Piper, I think he would tell you that this issue is one that has to do with the essence of the gospel, and that if you believe what Wright says, uh, you're not believing in justification by faith alone. 
It's a denial of the, the Protestant Reformation, and it is endangering the souls of those who go along with it. And if you put it then, therefore, into that category, then you're in the category of, of Paul in Galatians, of which he says, you know, things like, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, of which there's another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And he goes on to use some very strong language in the course of Galatians with regard to that. And if you, you look at Calvin's Institutes, uh, Calvin was far more moderate than was Luther. Luther used scatological language in his debates and was perhaps beyond any bounds of, of, of propriety on some points. But Calvin uh, was, uh, was beyond... Uh, we live in a very nice age, you know, um, and we don't like to say mean things at all. Um, but uh, you read a, a man who is as reasonable and by the standards of the day as nice as, as Calvin, and he says these similar kinds of very strong, strong statements because he thought that people's lives depended on the truth. And so he, he was willing to, uh, to stand up in a strong way. All that to say, though, I agree that we must always come in personal terms because it's a contention for the truth and for theology and not contending uh, over personalities and of impugning motivations and that sort of thing. Agreed. It struck me when you were talking about, what did you call it, the transformational view of the atonement, I mean, isn't this the view of Peter Abelard? And doesn't that just illustrate how important it is to, to know the history? I think you're quite right. <laughs> Indeed. It, it seems that the change from modernism and liberalism to postmodernism is that when Machen was debating with people, they at least believed in words that, you know, this word has this meaning and that word has that meaning. With the... The postmodern debate, it seems like words don't matter, that if, if you make a statement that it, it just has no foundation, that it's, it's trying to kind of pin down a cloud, and how, how do we then engage with postmodern Christians like the emerging church and the influence that they're having when they, they don't believe in the very tools that they're using to discredit the truth? Excellent question. I was searching around. Um, I, I think that didn't make it into the, the lecture tonight, but for a quote that demonstrated actually that uh, postmodernism is not quite as new as we sometimes think it is, that in fact Machen was already dealing with in, its incipient forms back then. Part of this whole thing of calling things by their right names has to do with, these, with the notion of multiple valid perspectives. And that's something that I think we're going to increasingly have to deal with. Because there are those who say, yes, I believe this. And if I'm speaking to old people or modern people or people who live in the suburbs or something like that, then I'll speak in using these old modernist conceptions and formulations. But if I'm speaking to young, hip people in the urban center, then I'm going to have a whole different set of formulations that I give. Because both of these are just perspectives on the truth. So that's just to, to state the severity of the problem. As to what we do, um, I don't think, and I think, by the way, that Machen's sort of successor, I mentioned Carl Truman at Westminster, if you were to ask him, he would say, I don't think that really all that many people actually are deep down postmodernists. 
I think that really when it comes down to it, um, that you can employ a lot of the same sort of things that have always been the case. And I think that that's worthwhile for us is because otherwise we'd have to say that this Bible isn't adequate. The Bible didn't know about postmodern, postmodernism and therefore we don't have a way to cope with it. But what we say is that um, this Bible is for all time and the Holy Spirit is real. And uh, it's interesting that uh, when the, the Holy Spirit is working upon someone, they can be as, as postmodern as they might. But, uh, but strangely, these, these truths of, of orthodoxy uh, come into them in perhaps a way that could never happen by merely discussion. One of the battles today is sufficiency. Mm. Did he have much to say about that? Well, I'm, I'm not a Machen scholar, really, um, but, and I, I seem to recall a couple of times of which he, he affirmed that doctrine. But no, again, he didn't have all that much to say because I think Warfield had a few things to say about it. Um, and that's, that's so often the case. You know, Jonathan Edwards didn't write on every topic. He wrote on the particular topics that he felt hadn't been addressed at the moment. Uh, and he left uh, a whole host of things that were established in the Reformed Orthodoxy of the previous century untouched. So I, I think perhaps that's the case. Bill, um, the subject has already come up of John Piper responding to Tom Wright's new perspectives on Paul. Could you give us a couple of examples of men who are carrying on today in the tradition of Machen, contending for the faith, and uh, the kind of issues over which they're taking a stand? Well, I th- I think that's um, an excellent issue. It's, and it wouldn't just be Piper. Actually, there's any number of men, um, Ligon Duncan, Derek Thomas, uh, Sean Michael Lucas, uh, who have dealt with the, the issue of uh, the new perspective on Paul and its American sort of corollary, uh, which is called the Federal Vision, which I understand has made some inroads uh, in the UK as well. Um, and likewise, with regard to inerrancy, that hasn't gone away. Uh, sometimes we think that it has, but it hasn't. You've mentioned the issue of sufficiency. That's a major issue. But along with it are sort of perverse ways of understanding inerrancy. And one of those examples would be a man called Peter Inns. And interestingly, he was recently um, sort of forced out of Westminster Seminary, which he occupied a chair of Old Testament there. And basically, his idea of, of inerrancy uh, ended up meaning sort of the very opposite, in that God intentionally allowed there to be error and myth incorporated into the Old Testament, and that Adam actually wasn't a real historical figure, and, and you know, various things along those lines. So, uh, yes, inerrancy is still a live one. Um, uh, I mentioned Carl Truman there in, in, uh, in any number of, of issues. It's... I. Uh, I think uh, the soteriological issues are the major ones, and for those, it would be the new perspective. And it would also be called, uh, this, this transformationalism, which I mentioned, a transformational view of the atonement and a transformational view of the gospel in which the gospel is reduced to the, the cultural effects on it. I'm actually, in different ways, a fan of both John Piper and Tom Wright. Um, one of the things that very concerned me about Piper in the debate, and a little bit just with you, just um, generally, is the way that sometimes people who come from a very strong reform background actually seem to um, 
think that it's the be-all and end-all of orthodoxy because I was very disturbed when John Piper was seemed to be um, actually saying that if Tom Wright didn't accord with um, Westminster Confession or whatever um, and seemed to value that over Tom Wright's believing and thinking that he was actually um, going to what the the Bible was actually saying using the original cultures. So I, I just wanted to comment on that and, and see how you, ask how you view that because it has concerned me sometimes when people seem to value conformity with um, particular um, confessions uh, even over sort of... Um, well, just valuing that and saying, thinking that's to be an be all and end all. Um, um, but sometimes it comes across like that. Sure. Um, with all due respect, um, I, I suppose that uh, what you just said would be an example of indifferentism, and so it might be useful for us and um, to have as an example of indifferentism for me to give the question back. Perhaps, why don't you think? that it's crucial to have a right understanding of how we are saved, how we are made right before God. I actually, on this issue, because I love John Piper's preaching and his passion, I myself actually have tended to be more convinced by Tom Wright, having read both of them. And it was just the statements that have been made by John Piper, I've forgotten the exact one, but where he seems to be um, valuing conformity to like sure. particular Protestant would, doctrines. Would you agree that these, these uh, views of soteriology are mutually incompatible? Not entirely sure. Okay. Um, it probably depends on exactly how you view them because I actually sometimes think John Piper doesn't fully understand Tom Wright. So. Okay. Well, I mean, for my part, I, um, I agree with Piper and I think that what Wright is doing is uh, a betrayal of the Protestant Reformation and that his soteriology is essentially uh, along the lines of, of what Catholicism has, has taught. So um, I can only quite concur um, that it is a crucial, crucial issue. And if indeed soteriology, is, if indeed justification is a hinge upon which religion turns, then it absolutely must be gotten right. Now, if, if right is correct, by the way, um, then that's extremely important as well because it is a totally different way of what Protestants have traditionally understood the way of salvation. And if he's right, then there's, there's any number of things that need to change. But those things are mutually incompatible, and it's crucial, I think, that we get them right. How do... Like, when, when Machen went to Germany, he, he heard that the liberals firsthand, and I'm... I've just passed that bit in the Stonehouse biography, so he seems to have kind of n- nearly been caught up in that. Yeah. How, how do we then address the issues that liberals are raising without being seduced by the wolves in sheep's clothing? Or, or, or do we leave that, n- not in the sense that we leave it to people with bigger brains than ours, but is there something to be said for the fact that somebody with the intellectual capacity and stability of someone like John Piper or Don Carson can go into more dangerous waters than somebody like, like me, who, who yeah. prefers my theology and kind of pop-up books. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 hey, I, I feel the same way. Um, I would 
be lying if I didn't say that I, I didn't feel some of the force and the attraction. For instance, of Tom Wright, the man can write, okay? Um, and um, I think the same could be said for lots of figures, including Harriman. So I don't have a good answer to that question. I, uh, thankfully, God has given us uh, elders and ministers and churches, and for those who are ministers, he's given us ministers over us to kind of ask those kind of questions and boy, we pray for one another's wisdom in those things. Because I don't want us to be ostriches with our heads stuck in the sand. That's precisely what Mason stood against. But on the other hand, there is a way in which you can study people that you end up falling for it. So, um, I've always thought that um, Arminianism and Calvinism are like a, um, a equal um, expressions of um, Orthodox Christian faith and um, that they've both got an, <laughs> an element of truth in them. Um, do you think that view's wrong? Um, and why, if you do, because you're nodding your head? Um, I do think that, that view is wrong. Um, again, with, with all due respect, I think if we can learn nothing from Mason, it's to argue like men um, over things that we disagree about without bringing into... Um, personalities. Um, I don't dislike you. I've not met you. I hope to meet you out thereafter, but I, I think that's, that's absolutely incorrect. Um, historically, it's not correct. Arminianism is an outgrowth of the Enlightenment, and in my opinion, the Enlightenment well, gave us many, many good things. At its base, at its most radical element, as conceived by Spinoza, was a rebellion against the authority of God, and particularly the authority of the Word of God. And so its whole project was to sort of put human reason in the place of, of the Bible. And there's all sorts of things that sound very unreasonable to natural human beings, and one of them would be the sovereignty of God. And so in the, in the, the spirit of, of the Enlightenment, and of course it's not new, it existed in other times and places, but it was an outgrowth. Some call it a, a rebellious daughter of the Reformed faith, um, but it's a... a um, a sort of saying that, no, God's not in charge, ultimately, of, of human destiny, that, that I am. Now, so no, I, I don't think, even again, even if Arminianism were true, you could not possibly say that it's in any way uh, a, a, a valid perspective alongside Calvinism. Again, when the Calvinists met, and it wasn't just one nation, it wasn't just the Dutch, they invited everybody, every Protestant church in Europe to come, not all of them did, but they invited them all, and they they unequivocally said that this is a heresy. This is not what the Bible teaches. So obviously, if the Calvinists themselves don't think that, and the Arminians themselves don't think that it's, it's mutually valid, and I've heard many an Arminian preacher, I used to go to an Arminian church, uh, that said if what, what Calvinists says is true, then God is a monster, um, then it, those two things cannot both be valid perspectives on, on the truth. Why do, you, why do you think that Machen didn't go, he didn't enroll as a chaplain, he went to make chocolate for the, for the troops on the front line? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, and I'm just, I'm completely dependent here on the Stonehouse biography, but he actually tried to become a chaplain. He made some inquiries. It wasn't all that easy to get a commission as a chaplain at that point. Today, <clears throat> If you wanted to be a chaplain in the U.S. Army, um, well, you could probably do so. Um, they need chaplains. They, there's not many of them. Um, 
but for back then, it wasn't all that easy for, for people to become a chaplain. So that's, I think, the simple answer. Well, what do you think of him to do that? He came from a very privileged background. He would have had servants at home. Yeah, you think of him shaving that chocolate, boiling the, boiling the water. It gave, uh, for those of you who have read the, the biography, it gave some you know, wonderful sort of uh, homey kind of examples of his you know, recipe for making hot chocolate and how much time he spent doing it and, and so forth and the, the labor of bringing the stuff to his camp and all. And um, Yeah, I think it speaks of his humility. Um, again, he wasn't a perfect man. He had his flaws, but uh, it took a kind of basic humility to... Spend uh, nine months serving cho- hot chocolate. So. Well, I'm, I'm sure you'd want me to thank Bill very much for his very clear, concise talk tonight and the way he's dealt with questions so graciously. Thank you, Bill, for doing that, and we do appreciate it very much. <laughs>